Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dismantling Injustice, where we offer fresh perspectives on the criminal legal system, immigration, racial justice, and other issues affecting your community. On this podcast, you'll hear stories from those movement leaders and those directly impacted. You'll get deep dives into issues that aren't being talked about in the news, and you'll hear some light banter along the way. I'm Carl Hammond Lipscomb, and I'm here with my comrade, Saleh Israel, and we're your co-hosts. Um, If you haven't already, I encourage you to click the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to, um, to us so you can get updates on new podcast episodes. So this week, we're talking about the impact of COVID-19 on those in immigration detention and prison. From the outset, this issue has received some attention. As early as last April, attorneys and advocates were raising the alarm about the outbreak of COVID-19 in jails, particularly Rikers Island here in New York City, as well as the local detention centers at Hudson, Essex, and Elizabeth counties in New Jersey. A couple of weeks ago, the New York Times released a short documentary that showed over 12,000 diagnoses in ICE detention centers. It showed that doctors and ICE staff wholly ignored complaints about illness from individuals in detention, not testing them until it was too late. And as a result, not only did COVID spread inside of detention, but also workers, ICE workers, correction workers went home, back to their families and communities and the illness spread. Um, and the New York Times report gave some examples in Texas. Um, I'm sure we have saw something similar up here in the north in New Jersey and New York. Um, and we definitely saw something similar here at Rikers. Um, so, Sally, I guess my first question, and you and I have talked about this. We've talked about how, you know, how COVID-19 spread inside of jails, detention, prison, um, especially um, here in New York at Rikers. Um, and so my first question is, one, does this surprise you? Absolutely not. Uh, I mean, it's been, I, I literally went and picked a couple of people up from prison when they were when they were released for parole purposes, not because of COVID, because they made parole. And the reality is very early on, the moment COVID started to hit, it was like this immediate response that said, no more visits, everyone's locked in. Uh, so from, from that perspective, I think that unfortunately, our correctionals, correctional institutions, their first inclination for anything is to reduce as much work as possible. And that means keeping people in one place as long as possible. And the idea of going to sick call, what they call it, you know, you say, I want to see a nurse, they call that sick call. This idea that you put in a slip and say, I'm not feeling well, I need to see someone. Well, if you already have a, like a, a moderate lockdown, which means that we don't want to have int- a person-to-person contact with as few as people as possible, and then you add to that the fact that it's always like that as, anyway, they want to have as less personal contact with mm-hmm. staff and, you know, detainees as possible or, you know, incarcerated people as possible. When you add the sickness to that, it's like, well, we have a built-in reason why we don't have to move anybody for anything. And everyone's busy, right? So, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not surprised. I felt like that. There, there were a number of times, you know, that when there wasn't COVID where people that are incarcerated feel like they're not being seen when they have issues or they're not being taken seriously when they say something's wrong with them. So when you add COVID to that, you know, and let's be real, the symptoms of COVID – Early on, it's like, oh, you just got the flu. I mean, there were people who just felt like it's nothing more than a flu. Mm-hmm. And to tell someone, my throat hurts, or I got a cough, yeah, just, you'll be all right. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we still have, even when it's this serious in this country, we still have a, a, a very large population in this country that believe is not that serious. Mm-hmm. So where do they work at? What type of jobs do they have, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> uh, what are they responsible for? 
Uh, that's the part that we haven't thought through. Every time we see someone appear on one of these news shows that says everyone's overreacting about this, let's just go back to normal. That person, you know, there are other people like him that work in places yeah. where people need help that have the same attitudes, which is, it's not that serious. Stop it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, no, I'm not surprised at all. Yeah, and this is um, this reminds me a few years ago when I was back when I was in law school, I wrote about this exact issue in immigrant detention and how like in immigrant detention, oftentimes these detention facilities are run by private companies. And so an individual that is ill, like there's like a huge bureaucracy that's between an individual and getting attention. And you had individuals that like, you know, had just very specific medical needs because of chronic illnesses that would have trouble getting like their insulin or getting their HIV medications and they would get sick and the guards would tell them, oh, just get some Tylenol and put ice on it. And some of those people, you know, sadly died. And it sounds like something very similar happened with COVID-19 um, in detention and, um, you know, in prisons across the country. Um, can you talk about, I guess, you know, like you, you bring personal experience to the table here as well. Um, so I guess, could you talk about your experience getting, um, you know, your experience getting medical support? I was very fortunate where I didn't need much medical support while I was in, you know, when I was in, in incarcerated. Uh, but the reality is I've been on tears, meaning that the level that someone is incarcerated at and where they quote-unquote, lock at where, you know, where the, where the correctional officers lock them in at, where we're screaming, saying there's someone down here that's screaming in pain, and he can't call you for himself, but we're telling you something wrong with him. Mm -hmm. And we're yelling, CO, CO, you know, crack 25, so you got to go to the hospital. And I've seen people, like, literally never get the attention they need. It's like, mm -hmm. they just ignore it. And, you know, that is, that's, that's a very real thing. Uh, I, I've been, unfortunately, I've, I've been present when someone literally collapsed and they have defibrillators, they have defibrillators. And it was like, yo, you know, he needs something, serious attention. It was like, somebody should get the defibrillator. We don't need that. Yeah. And he died. Right. And, uh, yeah. So I, I've seen time and time again, where when someone says my chest hurts, it's not that serious. You know, we'll, we'll get you on it. Or they go literally go to sick call. So, so there are two, two levels of this. There is the bureaucracy that is getting to the place where they see you medical issues and then there's the question of when you be when you are seen does the person seeing you take it seriously those are two separate levels the first level is when you have an emergency is not so much the medical staff to make the decision of whether or not you see them it's the immediate correctional you know staff mm -hmm. that says should we pick up the phone and call medical right and ask them should we bring this person down there or should they send someone here to see this person and then there's the question of if you make it past that very serious ro first roadblock, when you see someone now and you, and you tell them what you're feeling, do they take what you're telling them seriously? Yeah. Or do they think that you are, you know, hyperbolizing or exaggerating? Or, and, and, and what's funny is for, for most stuff, and it's, you know, there, there's a, a correlation between respiratory issues and COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, there's a high amount of cases in New York State where people who claim to have chest pains and respiratory issues are not taken seriously. Yeah. Right. It's like, here, take this Tylenol and just go back to your cell. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's been my real, I mean, personal experience watching people around me literally die because they had a situation where we know for a fact, had they made it, to the, you know, the, 
the, what we call sick call, again, the medical unit, fast enough, they probably would have got attention, but they couldn't make it past either one of those barriers. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we know that, you know, like what happens in prison detention is, you know, really like it's a m- multiplied version of what communities of color and poor communities face outside of prison and detention because this, you know, what you described to me is very much like the experience of black people in communities trying to get medical attention. Um, You know, like growing up, I grew up in the South Bronx. Everyone I knew had asthma. Everyone, you know, like everyone I knew had some sort of cancer. I knew, I knew a lot of people that were, that were sick and they would have trouble getting medical attention. It always took the ambulance 10 more minutes to show up to our neighborhood um, for, for help. And then when, you know, like and this is very commonly experienced um, by people of color, once you show up to a hospital, it's a struggle to be taken seriously. And, and so this, um, you know, this, this is another reason that this doesn't surprise me because we know who's locked up and we know who's in immigrant detention. And so if it happens, you know, outside, imagine how bad it must be inside. Um, and so with that, though, like in what you described was like really like uh, just like corrections officers being ignorant and not paying attention. Last year, toward the end of last year and earlier this year, we saw immigrants at various detention centers um, in the tri-state area go on hunger strike because they couldn't get some of their basic needs met, like PPE, you know, like, and I thought it was ironic last year we had, um, you know, people locked up in Rikers making PPE, making hand sanitizer, but they weren't allowed to use it. Um, So we saw like immigrants in detention centers hunger striking for PPE, hunger striking to get COVID tests. Um, But now it seems as though we're somewhat on an upswing. A lot of people are getting vaccinated. Um, A few weeks ago, you know, I forget where it was, um, in the area, but a judge ruled that we did need to prioritize getting vaccinations um, in jails and prisons. Um, And the New York court system is set to reopen this month. Um, I guess, do you think the worst is over? It, it depends on what, what you consider the worst. Uh, do, do I think that because, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a whole slew of repercussions that are in line because of how long the courts were shut down. Uh, you know, the, the question of COVID becoming the catalyst for all different types of oppression and malpractice and, you know, rushing things through and not taking your time because the courts are going to have a backlog. And traditionally, when courts have backlogs, you know, corners are cut. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, when corners are cut when it comes to uh, criminal legal procedures, you know, the corners are usually cut against the favor of the people who are on the defendant's side of of the table. So, you know, in a a lot of ways, I haven't looked at this yet. I don't, I don't know, I mean, to what extent was, has, has habeas court... I mean, there are so many type of procedures that haven't been being had that we've overlooked because COVID was such a big deal. And, and rightfully, COVID being a big deal was important, but there are a lot of human rights issues, a lot of issues of just pure habeas corpus issues that have been, like, suspended for so long. What does it mean in, in terms of people who had processes in the courts on the grounds of habeas? Which really means, like... I'm not supposed to be here to produce my body because I'm not supposed to be here, right? It literally means produce yeah. the body, right? Like, bring this body before the court so that we can litigate whether or not this body should even be detained. Yep. Uh, when there was no course to do that, 
those have all been pushed back. Uh, so what that means is that just on that very basic level, there are people who are, are inherently being done injustice to, right? Yeah. So I, I just don't know how, how far COVID, you know, the, re, the response to COVID is going to stretch into getting these procedures moved along. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. And, and, you know, never mind all the questions about, like, the types of procedures. Like, you know, some courts are considering, you know, continuing to do video proceedings. Some are going to be in person. Um, we know that judges are, you know, and I think there have been studies on this that show that judges are less likely to give favorable outcomes when they're not in front of someone physically. Um, and so, like, it's, you know, I think it's yet to be seen the type of impact that COVID will really have on the criminal legal system and, you know, court systems in general. Um, you know, before we go, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this question. Um, like, just personally, how are you feeling about COVID now? Like, do you have any, like, lingering concerns just on, like, a pure personal level? Yeah, I guess I have a lot of lingering concerns. <laughs> I, just, I don't know what the world's going to be like. Uh, you know, I don't know how, how, how much of this is going to linger and what is going to be instituted in, in, in place of what is no longer here. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, pessimistic about it. I'm just, you know, whenever I feel like I don't have a grasp of where things are going, there's a bit of anxiety. Yeah. And, and, and particularly because, again, when, when we start to think about, there's a big debate about whether or not we're going to have, you know, COVID vaccination cards, right? And on the face of it, that sounds like a very simple thing. But what, it, what people are not looking at is that's another reason to have engagement with authorities. If you're a person of color, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a new checkpoint that we can have. Like, do we think it's real? Do we think it's... There are so many levels of, and you don't get the benefit of doubt, every interaction just seems like an opportunity to go the wrong way. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so from that perspective, I, I have anxieties and worries over stuff like that. Like, what is going to pop up and how does it impact how my community will be interacting with the people responsible for re regulating new things as a result of, you know, the lessons we learned from COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Again, th those usually don't swing into the direction, favorable direction of, for people of color. It's just, that's just historically speaking is what it's been. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, I share all of your concerns. And I think in addition, I think, you know, we're on an upswing because there's a vaccine now. A lot of people are getting the vaccine, but there's still a lot of people hospitalized with COVID and there are a lot of people dying from it. And now it's getting to the point where the people that are hospitalized are people that live in poor communities of color. And so as we start to forget about COVID, we're leaving those communities out. Similarly, it'll be the people that are locked up, that are behind bars, that we're forgetting about. And I just, you know, like, that's my concern. I worry that resources are starting to be pulled, resources are starting to be rolled back um, for those communities. And we still have a crisis. And, you know, I worry that, you know, like, it'll get to a point where COVID is quote unquote over, for many, but not for, um, you know, not for our friends and family, for people that look like us. Well, well isn't, isn't that, is, well, when we first looked at the way the COVID vaccinations were rolled out and where they rolled out, and you had a whole section of the population saying, let's just open up, like herd immunity to happen. What does that mean? It means whoever falls off will fall. I mean, the, 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 the underlying premise of that is survival of the fittest, right? Yeah. It's like, and, w and when you come into that with, like you mentioned earlier, you already have, you know, uh, a basically a lack of proper medical care. 
you already suffer from all kinds of conditions that are a result of certain things that happen environmentally in and in, in, in around and near your community. Talk about the asthma, yeah. right? So when, when you look at that, when you look at all the things that plight communities of color because of a lack of access, and someone says, well, you know, let's stop doing this, let's open thing, everything back up, and whatever happens, happens. Like, statistically speaking, where's it going to happen at? Yeah. So to, that argument, we already have a, a large part of the population that have already done that and left us behind, right? Mm-hmm. With the, the analysis they've done is, oh, we're probably good. I mean, when, when COVID first happened, the one thing I watched closely was I watched a lot of people getting it that, that, that wore or did not wear masks and did not socially distance or did socially distance. And I also saw people, for whatever reason, just weren't getting it. Like, I mean, like, all of those, you know, congressmen that was like, I'm not going to. A lot of them just didn't. And, I'm, and I had to ask myself why. Oh, they've already had the best care. You know, they've already got all kinds of buffers health-wise between them and a lot of different illnesses that we just don't have in our communities. Yeah. So, so we walk in with kind of like a handicap in terms of already being, you know, it's like you got a race and our foot is already broken and you got very good feet. Of course, you, you, you have an advantage in winning the race, right? So it's easy when that's the case, when you're the person that does have a broken foot to say, yeah, we definitely got a race today. Yeah. And I'm saying, well, give me time to heal. No, we definitely got a race today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we saw when they did get it, they weren't waiting on hot, long hospital lines. They weren't in the emergency room coughing and waiting for a ventilator. They were being taken care of right away. Absolutely. Um, all right, so we're going to leave it there. Um, thank you, listeners, for joining us. As always, you can learn more about Brooklyn Community Bail Fund by visiting our website at brooklynbailfund.org or following us on social media. Until next time, Sally and Carl signing off. <laughs>